Hello, and welcome back to the Shadow Work Library. My name is Jessica DePotzi, and this is a really special episode. If you hear crashing in the background, my cats are going crazy right now. So this is a behind the scenes episode with, or a behind the scenes interview with Nako from the band Nako and Medicine for the People. And it was especially important for me because as we were creating this documentary and going through the production process and finding people that were able to share meaningful information in a way that was intriguing and filled with passion and also really helpful in a universal way to anybody listening, we came across this man. Now, this wasn't the first time I had heard about him, obviously. If you know Nako's music, and you, you probably do, it's so amazing. Like you can't unhear it. To me, there's life before Nako and like life after Nako. And actually it was my first ayahuasca experience where one of his songs made that entire experience for me make sense. So this was a really, really special moment for me. Um, if I haven't mentioned this already, this is an interview for the documentary Dark Night of Our Soul, which Oh my gosh, I think it's going to be done in October. So right now it's August. I, we've been working on this for years. So this is a really exciting moment for us. And once it's finished in October, then we start the long process of film festivals and whatnot. But we also have a short version of the film that's ready to watch right now. It's, you know, it's a short film. It's a short draft of what will be a feature and likely a lot of it will be changed. But if you're interested in watching it, send me an email or... You know, even better, find me on Instagram at Jessica Depotzi underscore. That's D-E-P-A-T-I-E underscore. And I'll send you a link to it. And I would love your feedback. We're at this period right now where getting feedback is really important. So honest feedback is absolutely what we're looking for. All right. Enjoy the show with Nako. Full name? Yes. Okay, sweet. My uh, my birth name is Joel Miguel uh, Nacoise Pereno. That's my father's um, last name. Um, Mendiola is my mother's maiden name. And um, my adopted name uh, that I got when I was nine months old is David Joel Nacoise Bell. Mr. Bell to you. Wow. Yeah. That was great. I didn't realize it was started on the day. Oh, yeah. It's the whole thing. Yeah. Do you want me to repeat his just simple name? Simple name? <laughs> One name? No, that's okay. Okay. Great. So, what would you say is your life's work right now? Ooh. To be the best version. Oh. I, I, I think that my life's work uh, is to be the best version of myself I possibly can. I would hope that that person who is working on being the best version of himself possible uh, could be greeted uh, by the public um, with a lot of grace and compassion. Um, we are imperfectly perfect, right? So um, that would that would be my hope. Yeah. I suppose most people know me uh, through my music um, or my activism. Music first, mind, music first. Yeah. Would you mind wrapping up for us? Um, I, I don't know, like lead singer of or. Oh yeah, um, I am the lead singer of the band Nako and Medicine for the People. 
a few formidable uh, uh, things that happened in my life that made me into the man I am today. Um, being born was one. That was fantastic. Could have not happened. Um, uh, I was uh, adopted when I was nine months old. Um, take it back from there. Do I go to the birth moment? Should I do the birth moment? You I could do the birth moment. Well, and I guess uh, to say that it could not have happened is real. I mean, um, my mother was 14 years old and mm, it wasn't a consensual, uh, um, what is the word? It wasn't consensual between my mother and father, so for my mom. So, um, you know, at 14 years old, you know, she could have had the opportunity to abort me and um, she didn't. So that's one thing that changed my life for sure because she gave me life. And uh, at nine months, at that point, she knew, she knew from the moment that I was born that she wouldn't be able to take on the responsibility of raising me because of the circumstances that surrounded her life at that time. So uh, being adopted at nine months was, uh, was a big uh, thing for me. Of course, I didn't know it at the time, you know. Um, and uh, being raised, I was raised um, in the suburbs of uh, outside of Portland um, by this wonderful white family that uh, housed me and loved me and taught me to love God and um, uh, educated me. You know, I was homeschooled uh, from third grade to mm, 10th grade. And um, then I started taking college courses and mm, community college. And I think um, being raised Christian was a big deal too. Um, you know, I think as I got older, as a, a young man, um, I, I was really uh, wanted to disassociate with that whole um, part of my upbringing. But um, as I got older, I realized how important it actually was to have been given a sense of spirituality and um, to be taught uh, these creation stories. You know, this would be, I guess, the, the Bible being the first creation story I ever heard. Um, and uh, I took quite a liking to it, um, but it was really indoctrinated, you know. And I think uh, um, in that same time frame, at six years old, um, as I was developing unconsciousness and, you know, sort of, um, realizing that I was a person, you know, and had a voice and could talk and um, uh, <laughs> I know I just thought of this, but I was like, I remember being six years old, just starting piano lessons and I had these cowboy boots. I really didn't want to tuck my pants inside the cowboy boot and have them wrinkle. I hated it. I don't even know why I'm sharing that right now, but I just remembered myself at six years old and I was like, dude, little buddy, it's okay, let them wrinkle. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I started learning piano when I was six years old and um, uh, there, was a, there was a moment between like six and 12, you know, I did all the sports. You know, my dad was like gung-ho about sports. I played all the sports. And, um, you know, I think what your what did parents say about you know teaching kids sports is teach them to be team players. You know, in games that is just competitive. You know, you beat, you gotta be better than everybody else. 
and especially being a young boy, you know, all these um, patriarchal teachings right away, like just classic, you know, um, uh, there was no, um, you know, uh, embracing the femininity uh, at all in those, those years. And, uh, but I do think though, that I made a conscious choice uh, to leave sports behind at, I think I was like maybe 12 at that point. And I was really good, I was a great pitcher. And uh, I don't know, you probably are aware, there's parents that live through their kids, through their different, you know, activities. And um, I think my dad was, you know, having been a, um, uh, I don't know if he was semi-pro or, uh, he was quite, quite good at bowling professional almost, you know what I'm saying? Like he was in it. And uh, he had all his trophies everywhere and stuff, you know, and so like he was, you know, to his credit, he was trying to find something that stuck with me, you know? And uh, because naturally uh, sports for boys is, you know, your first outlet, uh, we went there. And after a number of years of doing the sports, but getting so sick and tired of just being yelled at all the time, you know? And uh, being shamed for you know not being, you know, great at it or whatever, missing the, you know, uh, whatever it was, missing the missing the mark. Um, uh, piano was kind of on the back burner. I was playing from six, but focusing on sports, and the the. Even in the piano aspect, when I decided to drop sports altogether, my dad um, was disappointed in me. You know, he's like, you're a quitter. You, you quit things that you're good at. Why are you doing this? I let that go. I just focused on playing piano. And, you know, they really wanted me to do, focus on classical music, you know. And I was, I was great at it. It wasn't my favorite. You know, I wanted to play jazz and, you know, play things that were um, outside of a box. Um, more free to explore the keys um, but uh, I think um, at that point in in focusing just on the piano um, another moment that was uh, shifting for me that was formidable was teaching and beginning the hustle um, I started to teach piano lessons to kids on the street to adults um, on my block as well. Um, and um, when I look back at that, I think, I was like, wow, yeah, that was, um, that was the first moment that I decided to, that I was using my gift to um, work with other people. Um, and so I was, I was making some money off of that too. I was like, all right, yeah, 100 bucks now. <laughs> um, but uh, a formidable, moments. Um, leaving home was a big one. Um, I was 17 and uh, I was so over everything at that point. Um, I didn't want to, uh, I didn't want to stay in this environment that felt like I was trapped, you know. I think we all feel that way when we're teenagers, you know. Um, however, you know, amazing your upbringing is, or how perfect it may seem. It seems as though there's always a moment in your um, coming of age, that first, that first real chapter as a young adult, that coming of age moment where you're like, I can't do this anymore. I gotta get out of here. 
Um, and thank goodness um, I had the audacity or the courage, I suppose, to come back around years later to you know heal and discuss and dialogue with my folks about that moment of leaving and those years of not talking and um, maybe talking but not talking, you know. Um, and you know, also some of us have people in our lives, uh, parents even perhaps, um, that don't know how to talk either. Um, and so you just have to kind of learn to hold space and show up regardless of the ability to have a common foundation to hang on. Um, so leaving home was a big one for sure. And I think leaving home and then, um, oh yeah, I left home and then I, I had a job. I was, um, I was uh, music directing at a, uh, like a, a Grange Hall out in the sticks outside of P Portland. And, um, excuse me, I was, uh, it was my job. I, I dropped out of, uh, out of uh, community college and, uh, and got the job uh, music directing at a, at a dinner, or uh, it was a, um, a community theater. Um, and it was my life. I mean, like, I, I, I was a closet thespian. You know, I, I had, at 14 years old, I'd been hiring myself out to uh, the high schools, because I was homeschooled, so I, I had t extra time to go um, uh, be a, a piano player for, for the high school uh, choirs and for their, um, uh, for their uh, yearly musicals. Um, so I did a few of those, and that was sort of my first introduction to the world of theater, and I loved it. Absolutely loved it. But I was still very, like, shy and quiet and didn't know how to, like, be like them, you know? I was like, oh, I want to I be on the stage. I want to express, you know? I was like, I'm there, you know? But I wasn't there yet. I was like, hi, I'm the guy playing the piano. Um, in fact, yeah, I just remember, like, one of the girls at the, at the, um, at the, at the high school, uh, I got to go to prom with her. And, and I was already, like, you know, past that. Um, I think it was my first year of, of community college. But it, like, it was like, I got to go to prom. Wow. And, of course, I wrote a song about it, you know. I had started writing songs, actually. I uh, started writing songs when um, I think I was 12. Uh, I was, I'd be in church, and I was supposed to be paying attention to what the sermon was about. And I would multitask, so I would listen with one ear and make some notes about whatever he was talking about. I'd come up with a synopsis so that I could, you know, answer my dad later. What, what, what was the sermon about? So I well, it was about to see you. <laughs> and uh, on, the other, on the other ear, though, I was writing lyrics down. All right, write all these songs. Um, out of church, and um, then I go home and print them out. I don't know if that's the Sagittarius in me that loves that organization or what, but I loved it. I still have this book actually at home. It's a big black book, and it's got it's very organized for a 12 year old, 13 year old at that time. Um, I've got him in sleeves, <laughs> like has my has the song title, my name, um, and I learned this from writing classes. Uh, you know, it was like verse one. Chorus, verse two, chorus, bridge, verse three, outro. Oh my God, it's like so analytical. I'm like, who is this guy? <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, but um, 
writing songs at that time, you know, uh, the only thing I knew how to write about at that time was what I didn't have access to, which was conversation around love and the desire for um, that, for being seen, for um, how do I talk about attraction? How do I talk about um, this feeling I have uh, as a young, just now teenager? So those are some formidable times, you know, uh, discovering um, a writing process, discovering, uh, you know, um, how to multitask, I guess, too, you know, and, um, and then leaving home. And, uh, um, uh, you know, I mean, I kind of got kicked out of my house, too. But, you know, that's a whole other story. Leaving home and then um, just, just, I found a job, actually, uh, to, uh, in Alaska that, uh, yeah. Well, I'm trying to remember the question because I'm like, anyway, my life story. All right, cool. You don't have to remember the question. Great. God, there's so many formidable moments. Yeah. You know? It's a big question. I'm highlighting a few things I want to go back to. Cool. So, yeah. Um, whenever you're ready, you can continue on, which was we were at leaving home. North to Alaska. Got a job. We're going north, the rush is on. Um, <clears throat> yes, I, um, I was able to, to um, get a job uh, offer from a uh, dinner theater in Alaska. And I'd never left Oregon before. And so I thought, well, what, what better time than now? And so I took the job, you know, um, and uh, God, there's so many things to say about that experience, but... Um, what it what it brought to me was a sense of um, adventure. I I never left home before, and all of a sudden I was getting inundated with these different kinds of people in the world. Um, I met seasonal workers. I met people from around the world that came to um, this particular place. I discovered that there was this kind of you know work available that you could travel and you know. Um, do all kinds of jobs, you know, and, and, and visit these amazing places. And I thought, wow, this is, this could be cool. I'd like to do that. You know, I was introduced to some of my most transformational music as well on the road. Um, Bright Eyes, one of my favorites, big fan, still never seen him play live. Um, huge inspiration in my writing. Um, uh, Paul Simon, as well, um, was introduced to more of their catalog, his catalog, um, during those times in Alaska. I mean, I was listening to a lot of uh, indie rock at that time, too. Um, the Shins, Modest Mouse, um, Arcade Fire. Um, but a lot of old stuff, too. I was listening to all the Doors, listened to a lot of Zeppelin, listened to a lot of um, stuff that basically I wasn't allowed to listen to when I was at home. Um, and I remember being at home and, uh, I had a radio underneath my bed with headphones and at night I'd listen to pop radio and listen to alternative radio and I listened to Loveline. <sighs> Dr. Drew, thank you. 
What a thing that was though. I mean, my dad, bless his little heart, you know, like rest in power pops, but like, you know, he was pretty awkward at the whole sex education thing, you know? You know, and when I, I spoke to him about it at one point, I was like, why didn't you ever give me like some of your own experiences? Like that would have been so helpful for me, you know, uh, to share just the ups and downs, you know, of your journey to love and be loved in return, right? And uh, he didn't have much to say about it. And um, it is funny though, like I feel like kids in that generation, you know, uh, listen to Loveline to learn about STDs, to learn about protection, to learn about uh, the weirdest things that people would talk about on that show. And I was fascinated to me, I was like, this is stuff that's going on out there? What the heck? You know? So, um, that was formidable. That's amazing. Um, all the windows are closed, right? The, uh, yes, they are. We're trying to do something about that. Okay, right thank now. you. I don't yeah. think it's, it's not a game changer at all. Yeah, it's... That's okay. It's their dogs. He's like, hey, 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 hey. I want to be in the documentary. Hey, hey. Uh, the yeah, documentary? Do you, the I was like, did you say that? I was like, what's the good? Just a quick note. Yeah, when you're speaking, your your voice is so present and perfect for the mic, and it, the dogs won't be heard whatsoever. Great. In the off time, you know, when there's pauses in between, the dogs will either not be heard or they'll be drowned by the room noise we'll get after. So that's perfectly good. Okay. Great. Um, yeah, Love Line is so funny. Uh, do you remember the game Germany or Florida? Germany or Florida? Yeah, it's like they'd say something crazy that happened in the news, and listeners would have to guess if it came from Germany or Florida. Oh, wow. No, I don't that remember so that. Fun. I don't remember much of the show in particular. I just remember the context, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. It was a great show. Okay, great. So let's back up a little bit. Yeah. I want to hear about the moment when you first heard your voice in the way that meant something <laughs> to you. Oh, oh, oh okay. The moment I first heard my voice was in Hawaii um, on a recording. Um, we were around a fire, um, as we were a lot in those days. And I, MacBooks had just come out. And we had one around the fire. And, you know, GarageBand was, you know, a new thing for beginning artists. All of a sudden, you could have a recording. Um, program at your fingertips and so we had it there at the fire and I, I had yet to have heard my voice recorded especially um, uh, with my own song you know being on that recording and so we recorded a song super casual around the fire and um, burned it onto a CD and then I had it on a CD and I remember listening to it for the first time I was doing going like oh my god is that is that my voice is that my voice? Oh my god. So awkward. You know? I was like, hey. And I thought, I thought, that can't be me. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure I sound better than that. No. Uh, so I would play it over and over again as it was out there weed whacking and like mowing the lawns and trimming the palm trees and uh, I was landscaping and uh, doing all kinds of odd jobs um, on the island at the time. And uh, but I had a CD player and it was like a, I was like, I couldn't stop listening to it. I was like, uh, every time I listened to it, I would think of different things I wanted to change. And over the years, uh, friends of mine would often say like, dude, you listen to yourself way too much. And I said, that's because I'm trying to fix things that need to be fixed. I'm trying to get better. 
at what I do. Um, and so oftentimes people say, like, well, what do you listen to the most? I was like, actually, my music. Because <laughs> I'm critiquing myself every moment. <laughs> um, but that was, that was the moment I first heard myself. And, uh, and immediately I went into, like, critique mode. Um, um, it wasn't that I listened to it and thought, oh, yeah, that's great. Oh, whatever, you know. Um, immediately I was like, how can I make this better? Um, and, uh, but it, it was quite, it was very, uh, interesting, uh, to finally hear myself, um, in that way, uh, to hear my voice, to hear my guitar playing and to think about the song too. Um, and the song was actually Be Here Now, it's, um, on a solo album and, uh, I had actually just discovered Ram Dass and, um, read the book and, you know, was just fascinated by all that stuff. So I was in that space of like, wow, it's me. Is it me? Or is it just me thinking it's me? <laughs> you know? So do you think it's coincidental that that was the song that had you hearing yourself for the first time? No. No. I mean, it was what it, it was. It just happened to be this song. And I think uh, when I missed a call from Ram Dass, I thought of that moment and I wanted to tell him about it. And I was like, yo, man, I was reading your book and I wrote this song and what does it mean? You know, um, but uh, it, the, there's no coincidences, you know, it, uh, it all happens for a reason and you may not understand it until down the line. Maybe you won't understand it at all ever. But the point is, is that your awareness is there to take you in and say, let's go for a ride, you know? Okay, amazing. So can you take me back to the time where you uh, turned from this, the shy guy on the piano to taking up more space? <laughs> Did it happen all at once or were there baby steps? Or was there like a very impactful time where you're like, this is the time where I'm gonna shine? Definitely baby steps. Oh. Um, uh, what was the question again? I need to restate it. Mm, you can just start the story. Okay. And I think it'll be in there. Definitely baby steps to becoming more myself. To embracing the big energy that I do have. Um, and to stepping into my power. Um, but I would argue with myself and say that uh, I'm still just a baby and it's my, what a long journey it's been, lifetimes it seems, but the awareness I have now would tell me, as it is, yes, come in, yes, okay, we will share it, is that we've only just begun. And I love that though, because you know, you get into these moments where you think you've made it. You get to this point where you're like, all right, I feel good about this list of things. I feel like my awareness is here. Um, but from my understanding now, it's you're never done. And that's part of the joy that life is, is the constant learning that, and the constant falling. Falling and picking yourself up again and going, all right, I'm gonna do better. Do your best and then do better. Um, so yeah, I, I guess, I guess, um, all kinds of baby steps. 
And then there's, of course, been leaps and bounds too. You know, you catch a couple ones and you think, all right, I can, I can work with that. Uh, and then you start running with it. And then you got to, maybe you trip and you go, okay, well, I need to slow it down for a minute, regroup and consider um, the big picture here. How can I get better at this journey that is becoming the best version of myself possible? And are you willing to stand in front of all the firing lines and say, bring it on, let's rodeo. <laughs> let's stay on that track. Uh. Today, the line between boy and man is fuzzy. Mm -hmm. there, in the West, we don't really have a rite of passage for most of us. So we either fall into things or we manufacture them. Do you have a moment in your life where you feel you had a big rite of passage that helped you become a man? Mm. It was funny today, I was listening to the news and I heard, what's his name? One of the uh, senators, he was saying, uh, today it's, what a terrible thing what's happening to boys. He said, uh, they are losing interest in becoming men because of all this femininity stuff. And I was like, wow, this is a, I was like, this is a classic image of exactly what's wrong. <laughs> and of course it's a big spin too, because patriarchy doesn't want to lose. It wants to keep holding the power. And for me, there wasn't one rite of passage. There's been many. And I love being able to, in hindsight, look back at uh, many different iterations of my life and seeing the moments where I was like, wow, that really challenged me to unlearn uh, so much of what I had learned and what society had been telling me for so long um, was normal. And being in a state of questioning all the time can drive you crazy. Um, so there has to be a balance of question, uh, question and then um, a, a deep understanding and belief of something, and then the action of living that, um, to have even a reflection on it. You have to have skin in the game to understand the game. And I think that to name, okay, so to name perhaps one of these rites of passage, um, it's kind of a weird one because, so I never met my father, my, my birth father. And I, once I found my birth mother, I, I, I was quite moved to, and quite angry at the time, uh, quite moved to take action against him uh, in some violent way. And I thought, Perhaps my life's work was to find this man that um, uh, gave me life and you know, on one half of that complex story and to be some form of karma to him. You know, I was like, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna show up. I'm gonna be like, yeah, bitch, what's up? No, sorry. <laughs> but, um, but, uh, 
but I soon discovered um, that he was no longer alive. And um, there was kind of all this stuff fell away. Like I was like disappointed that I would never get to be mad at him in person, you know, or, or get to unload my trauma on him and see like, look what you did to me, you know, or look what you did to my mother, you know. Uh, and that was, at first it was really disappointing because I really needed to get some stuff off my chest. Um, and, and in my learning, I was like, violence is the first way. And I'm gonna beat him up and then I'm gonna let him talk. <laughs> you know, and I thought, yeah, this was my, my, my thought process. And when I discovered that he was no longer with us, it was deeply disappointed because it, it, it was shocking because I had to rethink what my plan was in my life. I was like, well, I thought this was the moment that I was brought to, to do this thing. And once it was taken from me, I was like, well, what do I do now? Um, and my dreams uh, for many years up until that time, and specifically from the moment that I discovered that he was no longer alive, they got worse. They were really violent. I was always being chased. Um, I was always running from some kind of negative energy, a bad guy. And it was always a shootout, or it was arrows, or whatever it was. I was and it, throughout the dream, I'd be attacked, but I never died. Yes. Best video game ever. <laughs> All the lives. And it was really troubling because then I would also have these weird visions and I thought to myself, am I making this up in my mind? These visions I'm having, like I'd be driving down the road and I'd imagine like a car coming up next to me and I'd look over and somebody would pull out like a semi-automatic and shoot up my car, but I wouldn't die. And that's all I remember. And I think like, why am I even thinking about this stuff? It's not like I'm watching super violent films and playing, you know, Halo. It's like, I'm out here surfing and growing food, you know? <laughs> I was like, what's the deal? Uh, and it didn't occur to me until the day in 2013 that my uncle said to me, do you want to go to the courtroom uh, the fellow that shot and killed your dad is going up for parole after 19 years and he hasn't had parole, he hasn't even had a chance of it um, in 19 years and he's gonna have this moment and we as a family are gonna go um, to advocate for him to be put back in prison for life. And I thought, wow, this is just getting weirder and weirder. I was like, yeah, let's do it. I was like, let's go, let's go see the guy that saw my father alive um, the last last person that ever saw my life. And uh, so I said, sure, I'll, I'll go. Um, a number of weeks went by and I was thinking about it and I was thinking to myself, I'm not really even mad at this guy. Um, I have different skin in the game. I didn't know my father like my siblings or my relatives did. I didn't grow up with him. So um, I'm thinking to myself, uh, this has been now, I think, four years after meeting my dad's side of the family, six years after meeting my birth mother. And in those years, the process of having to figure out how to integrate into two different families, how to show up for my adopted family as a son and 
share with and hold space for their process, which for them felt as though they had lost their son. They had lost their purpose as my adopted parents because all of a sudden I had my other family, right? And it was really intense trying to explain to my parents and to my adopted father before he passed away that just because now I'm aware and have relationship with these relatives, they are still mom and dad. I think a lot of adopted kids go through this when they do meet their, if they meet their, um, their family. It's, uh, it's how do you share that the role still stays the same. You need to still mother me, please, oh my God, please still mother me. Um, but uh, on the other side of it, with my birth mom, you know, the whole difficulty and space of now here I am and she wants to mother me. And I'm like, mm -mm, you don't get that right. You weren't there, <laughs> you know? Uh, and also the casualness, I think too, because she's only 14 years older than me. And I think that that also led into a, are we good? We're good. One second. I'm still on the train. It's yeah, all good. Great. <laughs> I'm good with this. <laughs> I know this story. <laughs> um, uh, with my birth mother, I think that the, um, the, 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 working with her in um, allowing her to be my mother rather than just a friend. That was, that was a difficult process. And you know, again, like I said before, all these processes are still in continuum. You know, we're constantly renegotiating on contracts with people. We're constantly renegotiating how we are in relationship uh, because we're ever changing. And that has to be something that is in dialogue and in awareness as we work with each other, as we grow older. Um, but uh, when my uncle, to go back to my uncle, when he said, would you like to go? And I thought about it and I thought, you know, I have a different relationship with this man that I never met before. Um, and having known the power of forgiveness at that time um, and having accessed it already, um, I thought to myself, wouldn't it be more appropriate for me being an outsider to the family. Um, what do I need from this? I thought, well, God, it'd be so great to just tell him I forgive him because I think that'll help me and probably help him. And, and I thought, well, that's crazy. How are you going to do that? You know, there's, what are you going to do? You going to go to the prison? Yeah, I'm going to go to the prison. So I wrote to the prison and I said, hey, man, uh, <laughs> I'd like to go visit this guy that I know. And, you know, I didn't hear back. And, uh, it came down to this short window where I had two days um, to do to do this, and so I thought, well, I guess I'm just going to try my luck and go to the go to the prison. And so I flew in on a Friday, stayed the night, got up at six in the morning. And this is San Quentin prison, and as I got in the cab at six thirty in the morning, you know, I was in, in San Francisco in the Bay. It's like it was really gloomy and cloudy and dark, and it was very eerie and I get in the cab and I felt my dad get in the cab with me. This energy came into the cab and I, all of a sudden, I just broke down crying. And I was like, what am I doing? This is crazy. You have zero plan. You don't even have visiting rights right now. And you're the son of this guy who, you killed the guy. You killed your dad. And you're gonna, you think they're gonna let you in? You know, I was like, well, they don't know that. I'm David Bell. <laughs> I'm not a prey now. <laughs> Um, so I stood in line for like an hour 
you know, with all these other families that were looking to visit their beloveds. And um, I get to the front, and uh, the lady says, "Do you have a? Do you have a? Um, do you have the visiting paperwork? You know, for today?" And I said, "I don't actually." And uh, she was holding my ID, and this is one of those perks of having a Hawaiian driver's license. She's like, did you come all the way from Hawaii today? And I said, I sure did. I said, I only got today. Today's the only day I got to visit this fella. And she, she kind of looks around, she goes, we'll get you in, honey. And I was like, yes. First obstacle, right? Get through the door. <laughs> so I'm walking down this pathway along the barbed wire, you know, and looking at the eeriness of, you know, the island and thinking like, what am I doing here? What am I gonna say to this guy? I didn't have a plan, zero plan. Same plan I had when I found my mom, zero plan. Went out in the parking lot and called her, found her in a phone number. She's like, hello? I was like, hello? She's like, who's this? I said, it's your son. You gave me up for adoption 21 years ago. You know, that guy? <laughs> she hung up on me. <laughs> she thought it was a joke. <laughs> so I'm thinking to myself, what am I going to say to this guy? I get in there and uh, there he is, uh, Filipino, uh, big fella, looks straight cholo, tatted up, bald. I was like, whoa, this is the dude. I'm thinking to myself, all right, here we go. <laughs> There's no backing out now. And he comes up to me and he says, uh, he says, are you like my long lost brother? And I said, no, but kinda. And I said, I just came a really long way and I really wanna share this story with you if you got a minute. He's like, yeah, sure. Now his energy was so chill. He could have been a total asshole, you know? The guy's been in prison for almost 20 years. Survived San Quentin that long. He sits down with me and he says, or I said to him, he sits down and I said to him, uh, I said, you know, uh, I began to share with him my origin story, as I just shared with you in a sense. And I told him, uh, you know, where I came from. And, um, and I said, you know, a few years ago, my uncle came to me and told me that uh, my father was no longer alive, that someone shot him in the head. And in that moment, his whole countenance shifted and he was, all of a sudden he's like, oh, you're his son. And, his, and I said, I am. And the tears started to well up in his eyes and I started to, get teary-eyed, I'm holding his hand, I hold his hand, and he says to, well, he, he reaches for my hand, and so I hold it, and he says, I'm so sorry for taking your father from you, that you never got to see him. Um, he says, a life for a life. Uh, and I'm thinking, are we good? Yeah, I don't need your life. <laughs> you, know, you keep your life. <laughs> but he begins to say to me, uh, I've been haunted by your father for almost 20 years. He visits me every night, um, and he says, uh, it was an accident. And in that moment, I got to hear the other side of the story. There's always different sides, different angles to look at things, and the only version I'd ever gotten, of course, or two versions, I got one from my mom, which of course was dramatic and born from trauma. There was no love there, you know. There's no consent. And then from my dad's family, of course, it was just um, brutal murder. You know, uh, my dad had no part in it, which of course he did. He had every 
part in being where he was, doing the things he was doing at that time that got him into that moment. And so when I heard him share his story, I thought there was a softness that came over me and I thought, I know what it's like, man, you know, to find yourself in a moment where you would, you think, God, it was just an accident or it was just a misunderstanding or yes, I did something wrong and I want to change. So for 20 years, 19 years, he didn't have a single visitor. I was his first visitor and his last. And so we spoke at length for about three hours. And I said to him, you know, I really just came here today to tell you that I forgive you. I said, in a, in a month, you're going to be facing my family in court. And they're going to have a different opinion on this. But I said, I think it would be appropriate now for your first time, and perhaps your last time in sharing, to say what you shared with me, you know. Um, I don't know what it's going to do for your future, but it will be healing for you to finally get to say you're sorry, to finally get to say, I think the bread is done. It's going to be delicious. For you to say you're sorry. I said to him, I think it will be uh, a release for you to finally get to say you're sorry after all these years. Um, and he agreed, you know, um, and then he said, I want to take you fishing. And I said, why? And he said, well, because that's something I used to do with my father. And I know that you didn't get to do anything with yours. I said, okay, well, we'll see, you know, and said goodbye and, uh, went outside and immediately called my family. Um, each one of them, I called them and uh, I knew it was going to be a point of contention, you know, um, my, uh, it, it was, it was hard for some to understand and, uh, for others, they needed time to process. I mean, I think in general, everyone needed some time to process. So ironically, I suppose, um, it was some time later, uh, after the court hearing, that my aunt had called me and basically said, um, you know, your siblings were moved um, by your uh, story, by what you had um, decided to do. And um, because of that, they were moved as well and thought maybe it's, maybe he's, maybe his penance is done. Maybe we can help someone else move on into their next chapter. And they pardoned him. And he was given uh, parole um, and deported back to the Philippines, which he actually had said to me, he goes, if I ever get out of here, he's like, I need to go back home and make it right with my father because I've shamed my family, you know. And he goes, there's a reason why I'm still alive in here. And he goes, if I, if, but if I do die in here, I know I, I'm good in my heart. I've made peace with my actions. Uh, and I, I was moved by that, you know, to accept your fate into the unknown and to say, okay, I'll sit with this, um, this uh, shame. I'll sit with this thing that I did wrong. Take it to the grave, 
you know, but I've found peace with it. I've forgiven myself. And he did that without the forgiveness of those who he hurt. Um, that in itself is a journey, which I've done too. And so I, I could relate to that. Um, so when I heard that he got to go back, you know, and to be deported back to his home and, and hopefully he's been out there, you know, reconciling his father, I was shocked, you know. I had no idea that that would be the outcome of that story. Um, but uh, what I do know is that he owes me a fishing trip. <laughs> so we'll see. I think he's listening right now. Yeah, right. <laughs> Um, I would love if you could package up for me the power and, and importance of forgiveness in a couple of sentences. Let me do one sentence on wrapping that, though, mm -hmm. to say that that rite of passage, going to the prison and listening to my dreams, um, or that was the rite of passage for me, one of them, one of those big moments that I can pull from and say, um, after that experience, my dream of violent dreams lessened. Um, still have them once in a while. Watch a lot of sci-fi, but it wasn't as intense as it was before. Don't have the same daily visions of like um, getting shot down. And what I surmised was that because of the violence that had happened in my family, my father was shot, my grandfather was shot as well. That the gun violence and the dreams and, and, and I thought, you know, to me it was my dad saying to me, could you please wrap this up for me? I need you to go and kind of, I need some closure and I need you to go help me do that, you know, and, and that's going to help you too uh, in action, the process of forgiveness and the process of helping someone else move into that space too and complete a circle so that other ones, other doors can open. So what was your question? Forgiveness. Uh -huh. You could package that up for me and go ahead and take some time to think about it. The importance of forgiveness in, in healing and growth in a couple sentences. Hmm. It? No, I, I, perhaps, but I guess let me share what comes to mind, I guess, in this moment. Um, <clears throat> I believe that forgiveness is an integral part to the process itself. You know, you hear a lot about, especially in this generation of, um, all you hear about is people talking about their healing, you know, I'm healing, I'm healing, I'm healing, good for you. Great, so happy for you. You know, they make their whole persona about healing. And don't get me wrong, like, I'm glad it's come to that now. Because imagine what the conversation is going to be like 20 years from now. But it's interesting to be who we are right now and be in our continuum of transformation that we're in now and witness this age of um, recognition to the process. And you know, we've, we've picked out healing as being, um, you know, something that we wanna 
be focused on, but there's, of course, there's so many steps, right? Forgiveness being one of those steps. Um, but, and the coming out of that space, the integration of what you learn from healing, from forgiveness. And forgiveness is uh, one piece of the Jenga, one piece of the puzzle, one piece of the Lincoln Log House. I'm just thinking of different like toys. <laughs> it's metaphors. <laughs> one Lego piece in that TIE fighter that is life. Um, forgiveness is, uh, is the act of letting go, not forgetting. What did Mandel say? I can forgive, but not forget. And it's a building block to creating borders, boundaries, excuse me. It's a building block to create boundaries and love with open arms, showing the wound and saying, I've been hurt, but I can still love you. Perhaps there's a boundary here now, but there's a different lens I'm looking through it now. And I'm not gonna let the hurt rule my life. I'm not gonna get stuck in my trauma. I'm gonna, I'm gonna hold it. You know, buddy, it's okay. I'm gonna grow from it, I'm gonna grow with it. It's always gonna be there, you know? So you gotta learn to like live with it, but not get stuck in it. I think that's a big one. I think forgiveness is the tool to not get stuck in your trauma. So we initially wanted to talk to you about music mm. and how that's medicine. And oh, I've heard about right? that stuff. Yeah, I don't know if you've heard of this <laughs> band, you're okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> I do want to get to that, but I feel like your dream last night about the clock, and I'm just feeling massive dad vibes today. And the gentleman behind me has seven daughters and a son, and and like you having that dream about the clock, um, and coming into this interview just has me feeling like we really need to talk about generational wounding. Mm -hmm. um, and then something around this zero plan, like you've. You've said it a couple times, and it feels important. <laughs> right, my seat, my pants. <laughs> oh man, oh boy. Uh, where would you like to go with that? You know, I'm, for the people that are watching, it's about post-traumatic growth, and a lot of our trauma comes from childhood, and yes. and from our fathers. And it's going to be the responsibility of everyone watching to do what they can to break some sort of chain in their family lineage. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, what's coming to mind to? Um, excuse me. Oh man, we're gonna go through a series of burps here. A lot of air's coming up. You asked me that question, I'm like, <laughs> yeah, it's like spirit cannot be contained in your body right now. <laughs> um, okay, so to use music as the terminology here, um, to discuss post-traumatic, uh, what are we calling it? Well, we can talk about music yeah. if it comes in naturally for you, mm. but I would love to touch more on, on breaking the chain of, uh, of masculine wounding. Sure. 
in the realm of post-traumatic growth. So what can, how can we grow from our trauma? Mm. Yeah, I feel for me, there wasn't a lot of male uh, leadership. So I'm almost like building it as I go now, you know, instead of having to come from a space where it's like, oh God, the men in my life were so horrible. You know, um, that wasn't my experience. Um, uh, and so I've had to kind of um, come at it from a different place of like, uh, of, of gathering um, good men in my life to, uh, to, to learn from. Um, you know, my not having my birth father in my life was big, but having the adoptive father in my life was huge. Um, and when I can, when I look back on the things that he taught me, there's so much, you know, outside of all the uh, patriarchal stuff that wasn't helpful. There was so much that was helpful. Um, and it's different too, to like break a cycle when you weren't in it, <laughs> you know, you're sort of, and I was brought into it, you know, as a young adult at that point, you know, I was like 21 or 24 when I met my birth father's family. So, you know, it was weirder for me. It was harder for me to try to understand what I came from. Uh, so I had to take, you know, a good decade, um, to get to know my family, to understand like, okay, so what did I bring into this life from the old man? You know, um, and I'm still trying to figure that out. I know a lot of it now, um, but uh, there's so much when I look at my mother and I think about my father that I can see um, so many similarities from indigenous families, from immigrant families that are embedded in our, our cultures for a long time and those it's it's complex and it takes a, a lot of it takes years I would suggest perhaps a lifetime to uncover a lot of those intricacies and, and, and those things that you want to like pull apart and rub the fascia and just like work that out and like get it loose again you know so you can breathe I don't know if I'm answering your question. I'm just trying to think of. Yeah, yeah. Know. Let's go more into then um, the responsibility you feel to make this change, not your dad. Mm -hmm. And to help other dads out there that are figuring it out. Sure. I think that there is a. There is. Okay, first of all, there's a difference between, I think, for. There's a difference between having a girl or a boy as a father, and I have a daughter, so it's also, I, I think about that and I go like, yes, because that work of femininity and like, because I've had so many women in my life that are strong and powerful and um, have been my pillars, more so than the men have. Uh, amazing aunties that are like my moms, you know, I call them all my moms, you know, like, hey mom, you know, and yet I also have two living mothers, you know, one that raised me and one that birthed me. And so uh, when I think about how to raise a daughter, given my understanding and my um, experience with such powerful women in my life, sisters, mothers, aunts, grandmothers, 
and having so much family. Um, there is an, there is a, uh, a, of course, a deep sense of protectiveness that I feel for her, for my daughter, because I know how men are, because I've been there before and I've witnessed it. And I don't want to make her scared at all, right? Of, of the, the rawness of the world, of this umbrella that we live under. Um, because things are changing every day in our, in our world. But it's a trick to be able to love her and raise her with open arms and not try to protect her, but protect her, you know? <laughs> um, and I think that I'm gonna learn as I go in terms of not doing what I learned and experienced. Um, and I think that children, more often than not, are much wiser than we give them perhaps credit for in being energetic readers and um, understanding space and uh, gender and um, um, safe places and dangerous places. Um, but I think Always being an open book. I meet parents who often will, you know, come up with stuff, excuses or whatever stories to share to their kids at, at young ages to sort of explain things. I'm very Sagittarius, so I'm very like point blank about stuff, you know? And I'm like, this is how it is. And you're three. <laughs> you know, I tend to lean into like, you know, you're gonna be an adult faster than I ever was. and. Um, why not tell you tell it to you like it is? You know, that's sort of I guess part of what I would be doing differently. Um, not not never hiding the potential for a story to change. That would be it. Oh yes, I got it. Whew. Nailed it. Um, how? Okay, just a couple more questions for me, and then we can take a quick break. Mm -hmm. um, how are you a stronger man? Because of your past traumas. Mm. And I'll preface that by saying, or not preface, I'll say afterwards, I guess, uh, lots of people want to avoid the hard things in life, mm. but it's part of the human experience. Facts. All those people that were in that room with us yesterday, in some way, are better people, not despite what they went through, but because of what they went through. Mm. And so I would love to hear that from your perspective. Um, I wouldn't be who I am. Uh, if I hadn't been hurt, consciously or unconsciously. I think a lot of times we're hurt unconsciously. And if we don't take time to reckon with that child in us, to say to him or her, or they, and hold that individual, that little kid, and say, little buddy, it's gonna be okay. If you ever need me, you know where to find me. You can always call on me. I'm always going to be here for you. You don't need to act out. And if you do, it's okay. I'm not going to shame you for acting out 
from that place of need, of want, of being unseen or feeling abandoned, you know. And I'm going to be there for you. I'm going to hold you through all the trials and tribulations. And um, we're going to get through this together. Um, I often look back at all of the things in my life that I'm ashamed of. And I can pinpoint that thing that I was like not talking to the kid. Where acting out based on the traumas and withholding because uh, withholding the true voice um, because afraid of loss, of abandonment, of um, not being seen or being uh, um, valued or you know uh, felt like I was worth it you know all those things that come in as we mature and start to uh, develop our insecurities you know and, um, I think that <clears throat> Uh, what was the question again? I know, I totally lost it. Okay. I was like, anyways, and then the child was there. <laughs> what were we talking about? Yo, I was... Uh, you threw it back. Um, uh oh, I lost it. I lost uh, it. Uh, about how the past traumas are going to be with that man. Oh. Is that it? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. <laughs> You're um, pinpointing your shame yes. in moments. Um, oh yeah, I wouldn't be here if I hadn't been because I was hurt and gone conscious and subconscious hurt. Um, yeah, the shame part was big, you know, um, shame teaches you so much about yourself. Uh, if you can, um, I, I've always, when I look back on the course of my short life, when I think I'm so glad that I got to experience it this way. I wouldn't have it any other way. You know, there's a lot of things people might say, like, oh, I wonder if he's hopes that didn't happen to him. And I think, nah, man. Perhaps there's been moments, of course, where I've thought, God, why me? You know, um, but I'm so grateful for so many of the teachers in my life, for the people that have held space for me, the people that have been holding me, held me there, held me and the child, you know, um, and said, it's going to be okay. You're going to get through this. You're going to grow from this. What can we learn from this experience? How can we be better at this experience? How can you continue to grow into the best version of yourself possible? Um, and I advocate for everyone to stand in their shit. It's the only way you're going to figure out how to move into that next iteration of your life, how to integrate the trauma into beautiful, for me at least, beautiful artistic expression. Um, how or can you courageously, if not in that moment feebly, you may feel weak in it, you may feel um, scared of course, or all those things that come up when you have to stand in the face of things that are frightening because it's a strong mirror. Um, but can you take your hurt and, um, and love it and then love yourself because you're loving it and then it's like, oh, 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 okay. Does that make sense? 
Yes. Okay, cool. Oh, that's so great. I have to be that awkward father. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's the worst. Um, Well, I, when I, <laughs> it's very sad to me, you know, the, I love the taboo and, you know, in my field of work, uh, people don't take jokes very well, you know, and I love that because I get to keep poking at them. I'm like, well, it's kind of funny though. You know, I was like, oh my God, it's not sacred. I'm like, but it is because <laughs> it's laughter. Let's take it down a notch. Okay. Don't take it so seriously. Um, or don't look at my memes. <laughs> okay. Um, <clears throat> laughter is the best medicine. You know, I think I, I couldn't have gotten through anything in my life. I've could, I couldn't have faced or sat in or moved through or accepted and loved my traumas if it hadn't been for laughter. You gotta laugh. It's the period. You gotta laugh. Shit is funny. Like, how are we even here right now? Like, uh, okay, sweet. <laughs> this okay. is the pun. <laughs> yes, the opposite are happening. Okay, that's perfect. That was, I did that off the list. Uh, permaculture, I wanna talk to you about gardening. There's so much we can learn from nature around embracing challenges and embracing adversity. You know? mm -hmm. Um, plants that grow inside, you know, are kind of like weak and yellow and have their thing, but plants... What kind of plants well. do you have? <laughs> inside plants. <laughs> um, Sounds like my plants when I'm on tour, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Help me. So, yeah, let's, I, I want to dive into, like, what nature has taught you about embracing adversity. Mm. It's brought me, um, stillness. Oh, oh yeah. Um... Nature has taught me so much about stillness and, and I guess in that same uh, reflection, softness too. Um, I don't have to be a person on stage. I don't have to have any kind of like social persona when I'm in the garden. I am a student. I hardly know anything. I'm just there like hosting, I guess, or rather I'm not hosting. I am... I'm being hosted and uh, I'm in a space where um, the greatest teachers of all time are all around uh, the soil, the plants, whatever kind of things were growing in the garden, um, the, the trees, the river that I live by. Um, I don't have to be anybody but my true self, which is the student, which is um, the, the most raw version of myself is just hanging out 
with something that is so um, fascinating to me that I'm always thinking to myself, wow, I don't know anything, you know? And I love that space because that's honestly how I feel about <laughs> life. Just like, oh, I don't, I don't know. This is great. <laughs> Learned all this stuff. What are we gonna do next? <laughs> Does that answer the question? Mm -hmm. Very cool. Yes, yes. I was just thinking of all the shit I don't know. Yeah. Like, Dude, I don't know, man. Like, I think if you plant this next to that, it's gonna do a cool thing. But plants teach us so much about ourselves in the most unique and interesting ways. It's so cool. Mm. Okay, last question for me. So you are part Lakota, is that correct? No. Oh. No. Oh, Lakotas, I threw the planes like that. What are you? What am I? Uh, our family is Mescalero, Apache, Taino, Puerto Rican, and Filipino. Okay, so this question may not relate. Yeah. Because I got my facts wrong. But um, have you heard of the Red Road, walking the Red Road? Oh, yeah. It's on Big Island, actually. It's a picture of a volcano. It's like a red road. Really? I'm just joking. Oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it is a red road. So, it's like red volcanic. Yeah, yeah. I think it's one of those in Vegas. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've been there. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the red road and walking the red road? Right? Sure. The red road is the, um, the path of righteousness, the path of purity, um, and yet it is, not, it is earned. You're not on it um, if you have not already been in the face of adversity. In another road, or a reflection road that I grew up with, um, Pilgrim's Progress, if you will, that road, same thing. You're going through life's uh, uh, challenges, through your traumas, through your shadows, and you make it through the, the valley of shadow of death, and you are constantly and for me, and I think for most people, you're constantly on the um, boundary marker between the red road and the black road. And you waver back and forth through time. Sometimes you're on the red road, doing good, life hits you, you have an experience, you trip, you fall, you're in the darkness for a bit, you gotta keep, you gotta keep uh, picking yourself up and dust, dusting yourself off and keep aiming for that horizon, keep, keep aiming for the red road, that place where you feel whole, that place where you feel um, at peace with yourself, that place where you feel you don't have a need anymore to be seen or valued because what you have is that sense of yourself and understanding of yourself um, that we desire. Um, whether that's through your connection to the spirit, to the earth, to your religion, to your, you know, whatever you practice. Um, the red road is a metaphor for what we are all looking to attain. Um, that's my perspective of it. And does a red road end anywhere, or is the road the, the purpose? <sighs> Just the purpose. It doesn't go in, it, <laughs> it goes into a continuum, the quantum field, you know. I was just thinking about a mushroom journey. I was like, oh, shit. I, was like, I remember that road. <laughs> it leads to everywhere, you know? Everywhere that you're looking to find peace 
everywhere where you're looking to find happiness. Okay. Would you say that again without me yeah. talking? Oh, yeah. Um, the red road leads to everywhere. Everywhere that you're looking for peace or for um, your purpose. It leads to all those places. Amazing. Here? Post-traumatic growth documentary, Nako, take two. <laughs> you trouble me. Do you hear the term uh, share your medicine a lot, particularly in your music? It comes mm -hmm. up. Could you talk a little bit about, first, just kind of defining what you think it means to share your medicine, and then perhaps take it a bit further and talk about what, that, what it's meant to you personally? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I think that sharing your medicine, I think that sharing your medicine to me means um, sharing something that um, is meaningful to you, um, that is transformational perhaps even, um, something that has value to you, right? Um, I guess, what is medicine? Um, it is something that uh, helps in the healing process. Um, it is something that aids. Um, so when I'm talking about medicine, in my music specifically, I'm talking about music um, because that's what um, has aided me in my healing or aided me in my journey to an identity or to a source um, or to a pathway, or to a doorway even. Um, so, I, what's the question again? Um, well, you kind of defined it okay. right there. Yeah. Um, and just if you, if you have <coughs> any thoughts on what it's meant to you specifically okay. in your life, in your process. Sure. On the specific Ex on a specific, um, okay, I can find the words. You can do this, buddy. Okay. On the specific definition of the word, when I first began using it, I knew there was going to be some confusion around it because, especially my family, that was my first thought. was like, my mom wasn't going to understand this. Um, my adopted mother, the mother that raised me, um, um, being that, Western medicine was such a um, uh, big part of our lives growing up. <clears throat> but I immediately attached in my brain, I thought, you know what though, this is my healing, like this is medicine to me, this act of playing and singing. Um, and I'd never had um, people in my life before that, um, that thought of it like that, that, that or I, I didn't even listen to music, you know, that referenced, you know, um, this is medicine, this is a, this is a tool uh, for your process. Um, this is something that can help you heal and grow and um, transform and integrate. That was a perfect bell. Can edit that one out? Um, but as I got older, I think that the, the term grew, I grew into the term. Even the band name, Medicine for the People. Like I, I grew into the name um, 
over time as I started to realize more and more how much it was transforming me. And as much as I got to also witness other folks and their transformations through the music too. We've talked a bit individual, kind of go back and forth between individual and then what you see kind of happening in the world. Um, and you know, a lot of times I think <coughs> you see people that are angry, or you see people that are assholes, you see people that are resentful. Those are all often symptoms of trauma, I think, in some way, or symptoms of something unresolved in themselves. How do you see trauma affecting our culture? the culture in the West, mm. yeah. What do, you, what do you think the role that trauma plays in our culture is currently? I don't know about the role trauma plays. I see the effect. Yeah, what do you see as the effect? Uh, everyone is so mad. Everyone wants to be angry at something. We're all so ready to be triggered and throw all the buzzwords out there and, you know, jump into the fray to be seen, to have some kind of value, to feel part of a movement of some kind, um, to uh, what do they say about things sometimes have to get worse before they get better, you know, and it's as if we're witnessing the worst part of it, and you can't imagine sometimes in different iterations of life where you thought, wow, I didn't think it could get worse than this, and then it does, and you're thinking, Wow, I guess there's so much still unresolved, you know, whether that's on a personal level or on, in society. And I don't know, I, I, I wonder where it will take us now. That's where my mind goes when I think about what I can see, how the trauma affects the people, how the trauma affects the planet, how it affects our livelihoods, potential future. I constantly think of like the next iteration we're not even here anymore. And I think, I wonder what's gonna be left over there. God, I hope people start resolving their shit. That'd be, that'd be helpful. Can I curse? I forgot to ask about that. Oh, yes, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 that's no You're idea. You're allowed to, but of course. <laughs> Aren't even absolutely necessary to make <laughs> want it to be like a family friendly sort of mm. <laughs> You were talking earlier a little bit about how when you were um, being raised and you didn't have access to your own femininity, it seemed as though, your own feminine let's say, it seemed as though it sounds like music was, was the carrier of your emotional experience in those early times. Yes. Um, can you talk about <coughs> now becoming the carrier of other people's emotional experience and what it feels like to, how you've experienced giving a voice to other people's struggle. Mm. The house is talking. <laughs> <laughs> Um, music helped me 
music helped me access my trauma in a way that I hadn't had a voice before. Um, Because when, I, when you were saying what I had said before, I was thinking to myself, well, actually, what I meant to say was, it's not that I didn't have role models to show the femininity. It's that I didn't have male role models showing the femininity, right? Showing that side of a whole person or a person on a journey of being whole. And so in music, I found that unbiased voice. I found the voice, a voice, one of my voices, um, to express oh, what I was looking for in wholeness. I could say things to remind myself, oh, you need to go there. You need to be more like that. You need to think about that. Remember that one when you get into the situation. Think about that. That's what music is so fascinating too, though, you know? Even this day, like I'll think of songs I wrote and released, and they won't make they'll make sense to me in the in that moment, but it'll be years later that it'll be like, whoa, that was me telling myself, eh, da, da, da. better get your shit together, you know. Um, it's so sad. Like I just want to come outside right now. <clears throat> but to take on other people's experiences is tricky. And I would also say that I can't. It's too much. I can hold space for it, which is a gift in itself to, to sit there and listen to the transformations. And I can give thanks for that because I've been through my own transformations, but I can't hold on to it. It's not mine. So all I can really do is sit and listen, marvel at how my own journey, my own shadow and light, my own uh, traumas, my own sadnesses, depressions, all of that gives me the skin in the game to make it plausible to be um, digested. It makes what I do make sense. It wouldn't work. It wouldn't work if I, if I didn't experience it myself. Um, if I didn't have uh, the experiences to, to look to, to say, look, I mean, this is what I'm going through. And to then get to see the mirror, it just reminds me of how human we are without all the stage and all the lights and all the you know you get on the ground level with people where you started and where you always come back to um, and you get to hear hey man my life was like this you know or um, I've been through this I'm going through that I get it and I can't hold on to that but I can resonate with it so much on that human level of, wow, this is a, this is a long walk. But you're gonna get there. And thank God for music to carry us along that, along that, that road.
telling Jess last night, I was like, man, listening to your music makes me feel like, uh, it makes me remember that being human is like one of the best games in town, you know? Um, yeah, because, and I think that a lot of music, <clears throat> you listen to it and you only get to see all the cool stuff, you know? Um, and that's why I really like my life. Because <laughs> I'm like, yo, I'm, I've been in it. Man, the game, man. You know, I'm definitely not perfect, and you know, and I think through the music too, I get to share my laundry. <laughs> you know, here it is, hanging out. You know, uh, and that's one of my favorite things about storytelling. Um, yeah, you can spin, you know, and that's part of poetry. But my favorite part is is uh, getting into the uh, in the mud, in the trenches. Tell me about the. The, the the muddy stuff when you were looking for that lotus you know how was it getting there and then you can celebrate you know you gotta celebrate too <laughs> so part of what you do is is really bear a lot of your soul publicly as you said you, you kind of get to air a lot of what, what you have going on at the same time there's no way that people don't project a lot of things on oh my you. god yeah so can you talk a little bit about what it feels like to try to be seen through those projections or to not be seen through those yeah. projections? Do I need to repeat that one back to you probably a little bit? No. In whatever way. Okay. Yeah, the projections that you get as an artist, um, and for me, uh, with the kind of... Mm, with the... The difficulty that the music industry has in defining what kind of music I play, uh, they don't know what to do with me. Um, I think there's many levels to that in terms of the kind of music I write, how it's been produced, um, and how it is or isn't uh, digestible to a broader audience. <clears throat> but the projections are, are loud, very real, uh, and um, there's also, I guess, a bit of a, what do you call this? A, um, it's a bit of a, a sickness in itself, the way that we uh, idolize people to almost a, a fault. There's no um, private life, there's no black and white, there's just this person that you think is this amazing thing. I do it. I do it to people all the time. I'm like, oh my God, you must be amazing. But of course, being a public person myself and having been projected on for years, uh, I also know what it's like to be human and have all this stuff underneath all of it. Um, and one thing that was really, has been really difficult through those projections is um, a, I remember, <clears throat> I'll start with this one. I remember in those beginning days as I was playing on the street um, in Hawaii, I had just moved there, probably a couple years in, and I was playing on the street, um, acoustic, you know, and I must have been doing it for a little while at that point because I had a little bit of an audience. Um, and there was probably like 20 or 30 kids there. Now, those are all white kids, a bunch of white hippie kids there, dancing, singing, loving it, 
I'm stoked because I have an audience. I'm like, yeah, listen to me. I got something to say. And down the street, I could see um, a group of local boys and girls, you know. Um, and I remember looking at them, and they were looking at me, and they're looking at me thinking, like, what's this guy doing with all these white kids? And I'm like, it's fun over here, I promise. You guys should come over. This is for everybody, you know. And they're like, hmm, maybe. But, ah, we're good. Just too many white kids hanging out and dancing being weird. You know, it's just not their thing. And I thought, hmm. I was disappointed, you know, I was bummed. I wanted to play for everybody. And over the years, that only got uh, more uh, visible for me. For quite a while, it was dominantly white audience I was playing for, and it took years to watch it become more of a rainbow, I suppose, and it still is predominantly white. And there's a lot of complexities within that that I recognize, whether that's through the way that I produce my music or the way I share it or whatever pigeonhole I got put into by the industry and the marketing, because you know, spin, it's everything. But the projections, the projections of what they thought I was, who I am, uh, based on what I was saying, and there's something to scraping off the top of the good stuff and not seeing the person underneath. That's a projection as well. You know, we do that often. We don't see the human in the person in front of the camera or on the stage. Politicians, artists, everybody. And I think the greatest gift we could be giving ourselves is to, whether we hear something about somebody or we see them do something in the news or whatever, remember there's always a human underneath there that deserves to be loved, seen, and held, and is worthy of love. Dot, 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 dot. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, <clears throat> I don't actually have a, a question, but you, but I'd love to hear a reaction if you have it to this. I, just something that came up for me when we were just talking. You mentioned Ram Dass earlier. He has a quote that says, um, as love crowns you, so too shall it crucify you. I'm just curious, do you have a, what's your thoughts on that? Say, no, no. Yeah, as, as love, love crowns, crowns you, you, so too shall it crucify you. Oh, yeah. It seems like there's a... Heavy is the head that wears the crown. Yeah, it seems like you've had to experience this dual nature of, mm. you know, one sense people are idolizing you. Of course, we love to yeah. cut our idols down. Oh, we love to build people up and tear them down. Right. Uh, the, uh, the, the... That sacred triangle of the, uh, we want to be the hero. Nobody wants to be the villain, you know. Uh, hero, villain, uh, what's the other one? Executioner? Judge, jury, executioner, hero, villain. Victim? Victim. <gasps> I knew it was not the V. Uh, <clears throat> Yeah, it's so toxic, oh my God. Uh, and so real. Um, and in this polarizing time, you know, where everybody wants to be bad at something, um, the, uh, it's that, that quote, very real, to, mm. 
actually have another way I can yeah. phrase it. Um, so if we use that triangle here. I just hear so much duality in it too. I'm yeah, like, oh, wow. totally. So it's like hero, victim, villain. Most of us see ourselves as the hero in our own story. Um, can you talk about the, the human struggle to see yourself as all three and the necessity to see yourself in all three? Yeah, the... What is it about our society that encourages us to be the hero all the time? It's as though we have totally neglected the, uh, the, the villain. Poor fellow. He, she, they is out there <laughs> in all of us. Because uh, we're so obsessed, as you're saying, we're so obsessed with being the hero, the shiro, uh, and the victim. Oh my God, we are in it with that but there's almost no mention of us being in this perfect union where you are constantly revolving around one or the other and I suppose the magic of that is that that's part of being human we are always revolving with this and uh, I don't know what the uh, what wholeness looks like if it's embracing all of your shadow and your light, your victim, your villain, your hero. Is any of it on top? Or is it all just part of the process to our wholeness in the integration of the trauma experience? I don't know. I'm still trying to figure it out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think to be whole, it's got to include. It has to. Yeah, it has to. You have to. You have to be able to reckon with um, the bad person inside of you, the, the the child inside of you that's acting out. And you got to look at that and go, well, "What is it that you really want? What are you trying to say? How can I help you?" But we often push away that responsibility because it's too much. It's hard. It's hard looking at the ugly stuff, and it can drive you crazy trying to figure out what it is that causes the reactions that, and the actions, uh, and then that creates the shame and then it you know, goes on down the line. No wonder we have such a mental health crisis. <laughs> I mean, come on. You know, there's just an endless train of thought that goes through it on your search to figure out why, how, I need to fix this. I need to get in there and adjust some things. Yeah, it takes some, it takes time and it takes some deep intention and some serious uh, openness to saying, I'm, I've been wrong, period. Toads. Uh, there's a really deep spiritual element to your art, to your music. Curious, what do you see as the role of spirituality in the healing process? The role of spirituality in the process of healing? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Coming back to yourself. 
Oh yeah, yeah. That's yeah. I I prefer that because I guess I feel as though maybe I don't know enough about the topic to answer it in the sense of spirituality. I don't know how to speak to. I don't know how to speak to the way that spirituality is healing. More of, in my perspective, it's more of a, it sort of comes in tandem, I guess. You know, uh, if you are, if you are aware of spirituality, of your connection to a greater source, a higher power, to the universe, to oneness. If you have an awareness around that, cool, great. Then you're probably on your way to understanding and identifying what needs to be healed. How can I heal it? What are the steps I need to take to um, get to where I want to go? Um, so what was it that you said though? You said, um, instead of spirituality, you said, uh, yeah, reclamation of self. Reclamation of self. back home to yourself in the role of spirit in that process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess I prefer to look at it like that in terms of walking yourself home. Um, ask me the question one more time. I think I got something in there. Yeah, what do you see as the role of spirituality mm -hmm. in coming home to yourself? Uh, specifically, we live in such a materialistic culture. Okay. It's like a blanket. That's what I see when you ask me the question. I see it as a force field. However your belief system is built uh, or is observed, spirituality is like the blanket that keeps you warm, comforts you. It's like the absent parent, perhaps. I don't know, bad metaphor. But it's something that you need. And it's there for you and it's comforting you as you be human, as you um, move through your um, evolution, um, perhaps. And huh? that's what I got. It's a blanket. <laughs> he said it's a blanket. <laughs> Great. <laughs> As you're trying to evolve and move forward, can you talk about the importance of also looking backward and, and having an attachment to your roots in that process? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, th I think it's imperative to be aware of who you've been and where you've come from, but not to be attached to it. You know, for... Gosh, so many birds today. Where does all this air come from? I don't understand. It's not like I was hitting here sucking air <laughs> and then like holding it down. Like why are there so many bubbles? Is it acid reflux? Is that what it's called? Yeah. Is that what it is? Yeah. Oh man, I have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> if you didn't already know. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about it later. Is this, a, is this for a health thing? Or <laughs> um, Oftentimes when I would travel and I do uh, press, I found that more often than not, the interviewer 
uh, for a press tour, let's say it's for an album or, you know, a tour or a single or whatever, you know, rather than starting with the songs or the album itself um, or the tour and where we're going or, you know, what kind of show are we doing, you know, it was always focused on, wow, you have a really interesting background. You are a mixed race person. You are, you come from trauma. Tell us about that. Tell us about your mother, you know, tell us about your origin story. Um, and through that, now in hindsight, when I, over the years as I've reflected on it a lot, it was re-traumatizing for me to have to have that be the first, first foot forward all the time when I'd meet new people. Tell us about how fucked up you've been. You know, it's like, uh, can we not start there? How about this great song I wrote, you know? Um, or, or, and, it was re-traumatizing for my family. Because it was enough for me to be out there singing about it. But it was doubly hurtful, hard to process, a struggle for my very large family, on both my mother and father's side and my adopted family side, to have to hear the stories over and over again. And, common with media and press, the story got spun numbers of times. And it created new problems in my family where they thought I was the one saying that stuff. Um, my adopted mom in particular had a really hard time with me sharing about being raised in a white family. And she felt demonized uh, over the years because of the way that she believed and the way that she, what she believed in. And it's taken some time to help her find peace with the fact that I actually am so grateful and so happy to have been raised the way I was. Because I wouldn't have, if it had happened any other way, I wouldn't be who I am now. And so it's taken some time to share with her the value that I have for her, the mother that she is to me, who she has been to me, um, the way that she has raised me, the, that she did it the right way for her and for me. Because again, I wouldn't be who I am now if it hadn't been done like that. So, there's a lot in holding on to the old story. You gotta look back, but you can't get stuck there. Like I said before, I'm repeating myself, mm. but I mean it. <laughs> that kind of reminds me of a, a song lyric of yours. You mm -hmm. said you've come to build a bridge. I'd love to hear uh, about how you understand that. When I say I've come to build a bridge, the intention behind that is that I come from two different worlds. I come from a white world and I come from a brown world. And to me, in referencing even that story I shared about, you know, playing on the street in Hawaii, it's always been my dream to merge communities and cultures that normally wouldn't uh, coexist, wouldn't hang out, as I used to say. Y'all wanna hang out, we should hang out together. And my hope was that through writing songs like that, or having intentions behind that, and speaking what I'm thinking, 
how great would it be if we could all cross that bridge together? You know, um, that's the sole uh, intention behind that lyric. It's like, yo, I just want everybody to be here with each other. And music is the bridge, as for me, as I've discovered. Being able to look into both worlds, do you find, uh, are you able to see the miscommunication that happens between them? Oh my god, yes. Yes. But it's not just miscommunication that happens between both worlds. There's a lot of hurt there, a lot of trauma there, a lot of unseen privilege there, a lot of unspoken shame, too. Um, unspoken white shame, unspoken people of color shame, you know, it's a powerful weapon, even when it's used on yourself unintentionally, you know. Um, but yeah, deep misunderstandings, but a lot of stuff that hasn't been resolved. Um, and it, it, it's all going to have to be individually based uh, because we can't wait around for the systems to change. We can be actively involved in changing them, but in order to change them on that level, we have to change individually. And I want to stand in the stuff that's hard. And how do you, uh, how do you understand that process of trying to transform your individual shame? Or what, or what is that like? Understand the process of transforming your individual shame. It's case by case. It's it's uh, the shame and the next thing, right? So it's each thing that you feel ashamed about. There can be an umbrella there, but then there are also smaller individual things. And then once you start looking at them, you start seeing it's a web of tied things into like, oh, this whole makeup of like my life. And for me, at least, it's 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 been addressing one by one and then in that process, discovering how much it's tied into everything else. Which is weird. You're like, whoa, it really is all connected. You know? Mm -hmm. It really is, though. It's like, okay. It just leads back to all the stuff from being a kid, and, you know, and then everything that comes after that, and you see all the people that were, you know, teaching you the things, and... Oh, I picked that up from there, you know, and whoa, you know, you just start looking at all the chain of events and you go, wow, it really is connected. Mm -hmm. So you really got to go through it, you know, little by little, uh, and, 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 uh, iteration to iteration too. Like I'm looking at my life from these different moments of shift and change that were really hard or perhaps even beautiful and easy. In fact, you have to look at both sides. You can't just look at the stuff that hurts. You gotta look at the beautiful stuff too, right? You gotta have the spectrum involved there uh, to find the, the bits that that uh, that you feel ashamed about. Because like, well, even some stuff you're like, well, I didn't even know I was ashamed of that. I didn't even know that that, that thing I thought was beautiful and amazing actually carries some shame in it. You know, where's that come from? You gotta keep digging. Does yeah. that answer the question? I don't know. Yeah. Um, we're at time check. It's one forty-five. Okay. Um, when we, well, when we experience shame in that way, it 
tends to be that what happens, it seems, is that we experience some sort of a fracture and then part of us gets stuck in that place, still unable to commute or to uh, make sense of what's happening, mm-hmm. to build coherence in their world. And part of the process of becoming whole again, and I've heard you reference this a little bit, is going back and, and reconnecting with those versions of you that are stuck in the past mm-hmm. of not understanding. How have you been able to reconnect with those younger versions of, your, of yourself? Mm, lots of therapy. Do I need to repeat the question back? Uh, yeah, I've been able to reconnect with those other versions of myself through lots of therapy. <laughs> Thank God. You know, it's so hard to find the right person to talk to. Take some time. Really gotta, really gotta keep looking and find who can be a good mirror. You know, I mean, a lot of people who ask me that kind of question, how did you do it? You know, I'm like, well, I'm still doing it. But you really, part of doing the work is finding the right mirror to express your deepest and darkest stuff to uh, in a way that doesn't recreate the shame, right? So that you can speak to the place you're stuck in, feel seen, heard, valued, held, massage that place, unlock it, and keep moving. Bring it with you. Don't leave it behind. That's part of you. That's why I think sometimes people forget you gotta keep, you gotta bring it with you. That's all part of you. You can, you can look back and go like, <laughs> but it's still with you. It's part of who you are. Um, but, uh, all the versions of who I've been, it's like all the voices in my head. There's a lot of voices up there. And they're all different versions of me and they're all different characters. And they're all, um, like there's even versions of me that I haven't become yet that are asking, they're calling me, you know, they're calling me in, hey buddy. The elder in me, the grandfather in me, the, the old man, you know. And you gotta let them all speak. They all have a voice. And I think the reckoning, you know, that you have with the younger versions of yourself, um, it's, from my understanding, you gotta hold those, those guys. You gotta hold those kids and bring them with you. They're standing in a line, not behind you. You're in it together. Um, Someone once told me, I'm forgetting who it was now. He said, uh, it was Xavier Rudd actually. He said to me, you know, Mako, every time you play, wherever you are, doesn't matter if you're by yourself or on a stage, he said, all your ancestors are out there. And they're listening, and they're calling you home. I never forgot that. So every night after that, I would always think about it. I'd be like, hmm, "Who's here tonight?" You know. And uh, and I think of that great council, you know, uh, that great council that's rooting for you. You know, come on, little buddy, you're gonna make it. <laughs> they're watching you trip and fall, you know, and scrape your knees and 
take all the beatings and lick your wounds. And when I think about them in the line up there, out there, I think about all the versions of myself in the line too. And how I don't want any of those old versions of me left behind because they all have value. They all are worthy of love. And I'm on a big journey of loving all of them. <laughs> that was a good one. I really meant that. Woof. Yep, good. <sighs> what, um, what would you say to people who are in a life that doesn't seem to honor all of who they are. Get the book out. <laughs> who are in a place where it feels like uh, really important parts of themselves don't fit. If I was to say to somebody who feels stuck, I would say, what is that quote? Is it a Buddhist quote? I'm not sure. If you're going through hell, don't stop. Enjoy the ride, by the way. Sometimes the worst parts of it are the parts for me that I look back on and, or even in the moment I go like, buckle up, buddy. You signed up for this, so don't turn your back on it. Write it out. Um, yeah, so I think if, if there are people out there Countless people out there feel stuck in their place. Write it out. But you gotta really listen to figure out how you're gonna get unstuck. And it takes sometimes, it's depressing to say it, but sometimes it takes a lifetime. Sometimes people won't get unstuck. They'll build their whole life around the stuck part. It's a bummer. But who am I to say that they're stuck? Just a feeling. Maybe they're not as stuck as they think they are. Who are we to even say they're stuck? It might look like they're stuck. I don't know. It just could be for that moment. Dude, and then I'm thinking about like my uncle and his son, right? Son's a drug addict. And years, you know, giving him so many legs up, trying to help him out, getting through the process, right? And uh, how do you help people who don't want to be helped? You got to keep holding space for them. Can't leave the man behind, even if that's the road they chose. Even if that's the way they want to go, you got to hold them through it, even if it's till the day they die. That's hard. Totally. Yeah. Um, okay, just a couple, uh, couple questions left. Um, not that related, so. Uh, how... How do you balance using laughter and using music and some of these cathartic modalities 
to heal without escaping? Oof, great question. That's a tricky one. I don't think I've ever been, I'm nowhere near mastering and I don't even know if there is a master of that, but yeah, the, how do you, how do you balance without bypassing, right? takes time and actually a lot of practice you got to be in it all the time and I am so I can speak from experience I'm never gonna let laughter leave me it's the only thing that's been able to like release the pressure when things get built up but I've always had a sense of reality of course as well and the part of me that says you're done messing around is like me, the mature version that you get to see right now, talking to all those versions of myself. And it's a, I have a new understanding and perspective on humor now. And that will only continue as I get older um, and as I experience more in life. Um, but there is no uh, real textbook on how to do this, on how to keep laughter and humor and sarcasm and, and uh, taboo, like how to keep that and still face the hardships, the lessons, the traumas, um, so I suppose it's all with a grain of salt. You're in the rodeo and you're riding the bull, but you gotta laugh while you're getting kicked off because it's all part of the journey. Final question. Um, if you can remember back to... <laughs> Sorry, he was going for me. I was like, get out, no, not today, Satan. <laughs> He said too much. <laughs> he was like, yeah, I'm getting there. <laughs> um, so, if you could go back to thinking about yourself being raised in this um, religious context that was very much built around the patriarchal construct that this, this country kind of built within. Mm. Um, how has your image of God changed as you've also been able to find what's real and true about you? Mm. Well, I mean, the, the very basics of um, how I viewed God uh, has changed in terms of, I certainly, when I was a kid, believed that God was a bearded white dude in the sky, you know? I remember, I'm totally going to share this story right now. I might not get this out, but this is a great story. It's a good story for now. I remember when I lost my virginity. I'm telling it right now. I'm not going to tell you how I did it. Okay. You can imagine. Don't try not to do it. Just don't try to imagine it. But I remember when I did. And I remember I was 15 years old and I was riding my bike away from that house. It was in the summer. And I remember I wasn't riding away thinking I had done something victorious. I remember riding away feeling fully ashamed. And that I was going to get struck down by God in that moment. That God was in the sky looking down at me saying, like, you had sex before marriage. And you will suffer 
And I remember crying my eyes out, riding my bike back to my house, thinking the whole way, I was like, please forgive me, please forgive me, please forgive me. And four years later, um, I was in Alaska and I might have been with some medicine. And I was almost run down by a moose. He charged me and I saw my whole life flash from my eyes and I thought, well, this is, this is it. It's been a good ride. And uh, she didn't, she bluffed and about from where you are sitting to me and she turned away and had a little pee run down my pants and thought, well, that was, that was a close one. And then I walked up on the hill and stared across all the trees and I had this thought. I thought, what is God to me? And I remember in that, I can clearly remember that moment being such a transformational moment where I began to deconstruct my idea that I'd been trained to believe uh, and starting to open up my heart to the concept that God is within all things and that there wasn't this one all-powerful man that I needed to answer to. And that was hard. I mean, my mind still goes there sometimes. I still ask forgiveness in my mind to Christ sometimes. And I think, oh, I'm down. But it's a different feeling now. When I think of uh, all of the origin stories that I've collected over the years, all of the different cultures that I've heard from, all the different ideas of God, of creator, of oneness. And man, it is, I, I, I wouldn't say that I'm done, nowhere near in that search but I'm far more at peace with it than I used to be. And I'm kind of just along for the ride, you know? Mm -hmm. Does that answer the question? Yeah. I can't remember what the question was now. All I can think about is getting charged by that moose. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that was great. I was thinking about like how, how your, your divine image has changed through, as you reclaimed more of yourself, mm. more of your roots, more of what's real about you. Yeah. Yeah, I think the divine, the divinity in, in uh, God, when I look out across a sea of people or when I'm standing in front of just one person, I am in such awe of our power as human beings. Um, to, to hear, like to reflect back on some of those stories that I hear, you know, to hear the, um, the power of resiliency that people have, uh, to me that is such a, there's such divinity in that. It's the most power I've ever known outside of what I can witness in nature. It's humbling and I suppose that getting to witness within myself and then reflected back in people that I get to meet along the way, that kind of resiliency, um, I, I suppose creates uh, a whole new image of, of the Godhead, of, of, uh, of the divine, of 
the spirit because I'm seeing it in front of me, you know? It's wild. I would also just like to add, and you can answer Rick, as if I'm not here. Um, <laughs> but I love you being here. If there's anything at all, Nago, um, what is the change you would most like to see in the world? Mm. It's a hard question. The change that I would most like to see in the world at this particular moment, I think would be far more critical thinking. If we could think for ourselves, it would be instrumental in the change of our societies, of our governments, of our communities, and of our planet. That's, that's the one thing in my mind today. I would love that. Me too. <laughs> that was great. I wish that was the film. <laughs> Is that um, perhaps something around like um, you know like when I look back on all of this trauma <coughs> you know it's easy for it to become part of my story but in actual fact I'm meeting my destiny it's right. about my future something like that I think that we often think that trauma well okay I have always, it seems, been able to take things that were hard, were hurtful, were confusing, were traumatic, um, and make something beautiful out of it. It may have taken years, it may have taken a few months um, to turn it into something um, that I can make sense of, to find the words, to find the melodies, to find 
the presence to show up as a son, a brother, an uncle, a father, a leader. Uh, it may have taken however long to get to there, but the point remains that those hardships, those struggles, those times when I fell and didn't think I could get up or didn't want to get up. And as I crawled out of those places and found the courage to share what it was like to be there and to discover through that that uh, it didn't happen to me, that it happened for me, and that that, in saying that, that it's not a uh, wash of the work that's involved to get to that understanding, but that in accepting what has happened, And finding the courage to take it with you and to go into those places, those cracks, and fill them with light. Not everybody gets to see that. Not everybody needs to see that. Because the most important part of that is that you see yourself in it. If you can see yourself in those places and hold yourself in it, you'll keep growing. Guys are good questions, oh, and uh, I'm gonna commend you on the space that you hold too. You guys have really great energy, and I hope the utmost success for this. Thank you. Yeah, yeah for everybody.